Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Today we're heading out of the studio up to the cold North Norfolk coast to Holcombe Marshes in the company of Nick Aitchison, author, conservationist, advocate for wildlife and more importantly, fan of geese. Jim, you're quite keen on a goose, aren't you? <laughs> I am, yes. I love, I love geese, but I love all birds. But uh, geese are, are magnificent creatures, aren't they? And it's uh, fantastic to have the opportunity. I'm very jealous, actually, Amanda. Yeah, I was absolutely blown away. And, and Nick made the most amazing guide. I mean, he's been doing this all his life. He's lived, you know, all over the world and done conservation tours. But during lockdown, he was holed up in Norfolk. And at home on his own with an old bicycle, he decided to follow the pink-footed geese. And as a result, he has written the most beautiful book and he's the most passionate advocate for environment and sustainability. And he took me on a beautiful tour of the Holcomb Marshes. And I say it was a bit like Heathrow. Things were coming in and going out every five seconds. Um, but it was just the most magical morning and what a way to start my week. So I hope Planet Pod listeners enjoy this as much as I did because we're off to Norfolk. So Nick, you're out here on a quite a grey February morning, but the advantage is it's early and it's Monday, so there isn't many there aren't many people around. And we're looking across I suppose well you would describe this as salt most of this salt marsh? No, it's actually just... actually where we are, because it's a seawall and it's a historic seawall, is very interesting biologically because to the west of us there is salt marsh. And this mm. is an entirely natural habitat which is created by the tide and by the tide at the points of lowest energy dropping silt which accumulates to become salt marsh and to the east of us is a historic but originally human-made landscape which is what we call freshwater grazing marsh although it will have a certain degree of salinity both because historically it was salt marsh and has been made into freshwater marsh by humans and because of the, the, the the closeness of the sea to the north of us and the salt marsh to the west of us. So we're, we're standing on an artificial ecotone between these two environments. And that, obviously, ecotones are really rich places, full of life. And so we've got all of the brackish and saline species on one side of us and all of the freshwater species on the other side of us. And this is the winter habitat for thousands upon thousands of birds. And birds are, <laughs> birds are in a sense, a sacrament of all the biodiversity that's here. I have a dear friend at the Natural History Museum, Dr. Erica McAllister, who she says, oh, you and your vertebrates, you're only interested in vertebrates. But the people can connect readily with the big, brightly coloured, noisy wildlife. But the birds are special, both because they themselves are special, but also because they represent the diversity that's supporting them. You don't get huge numbers of large vertebrates without there being phenomenal, wonderful productivity of other species lower down in the food chain. And we're looking out, and we've already seen quite a lot of geese. We've seen pinkfoots, which you write about and you love in your book. And um, we've seen brents. Um, but what else can we see? I mean, you spotted just a moment ago a harrier, a marsh harrier. But what else would we be looking at if we, you know... 
several species of ducks right in front of us here. There's a pair of mallards. Now, they're, they're probably on their breeding territory, so they're beginning to think about breeding. Just beyond them, the, the very small ducks are teal, so they don't... A few teal will breed in Norfolk, but really very, very few. And most of them will go up to Fenescandia to breed. And the ducks that are grazing on the grass just beyond them, those are widgeon, and they'll go to Arctic Russia to breed. Then there's a skylark singing, really a soon as Christmas has gone and the days begin to get a little bit longer our skylarks start to sing and these old traditionally managed landscapes are wonderful habitat for skylark and as you say we've seen marsh harriers the sheer volume of life here means that it can support large numbers of predators we've seen buzzards we've seen marsh harriers I did just as we were meeting see some kites overhead and there's been a white-tailed eagle here all through the winter in fact the white-tailed eagle reintroduction project on the Isle of Wight ha- keeps lending us its white-tailed eagles. They, <laughs> almost all of them seem to come for a holiday in Norfolk, and they all come. Some go to Ken Hill and spend a while there, but really pretty much all of them end up here at Holcombe. And there's one particular tree out in the wood that you can see in the distance called Decoy Wood, and they all sit in that tree, every single individual that turns up. And we know who they all are because they're all satellite-tagged. Um, and we... We know where they go, we know who they... And one of them was here for, I don't know, six weeks through the middle of the winter. And that's testament to the the sheer productivity of this landscape because you don't get apex predators like that unless you've got a vast amount of food for them to prey on. So they've come to eat, basically. They've come they? to, they've I mean, come they to eat. They haven't come for the weather. <laughs> how dare you? How dare... No, oh, there's a teal fly. That's a female teal flying past us right here. Um, that's a curlew. And again, the curlew is... Oh, I don't know if your mic can pick up the wonderful call of the curlew. Curlews do breed in Norfolk, but very, very sadly, numbers are really under threat and they mostly breed in the in the open habitats of the brecks or the heaths. Um, they, they don't breed up here right in the, in the north along the coast. Most of our curlews are birds that come down to us from Scotland, from northern England, perhaps even from the continent, um, but we have significant numbers of them wintering around the Norfolk coast. And again, they're birds which excel in these landscapes of mixed freshwater grazing marshes and salt marshes. Yeah, yeah. And in the distance, I can see a big flock. Or a skein? Can I call it a skein? Am I allowed to call it a skein? You can call them a skein, yes. That's that's rather a smudgy skein, but they're definitely a skein. So those are Brentkeys. Can you hear? If uh, It's hard with our woolly hats and a bit of a breeze, but there's a, a sort of... I refer to it as the Slavic purring of Brentkeys. They have this... Oh, and there's a skylight just singing as well. Um, the Brents have this... There coming closer to us now. The Brents have this wonderful, burbling, chesty murmur. And these are geese. So there are actually four forms of Brent geese. Some authorities would say they're subspecies. Some would say they're regional forms. Some would say they're species. Um, And these are dark-bellied Brent geese, which breed in Siberia. So in, in the UK, we have wintering populations, significant wintering populations, of two forms of Brent geese. The pale bellied Brent goose, the ones that come to our east coast, are birds that breed in Svalbard, but most of their population winters on the continent. 
the ones that come to our west coast are birds that come from Greenland and eastern Canada. And that's actually a globally threatened population. But these are dark-bellied brent geese, which are the Siberian breeding birds. And then in the east end of Siberia, there's a bird called the black brent, which is a stunningly, stunningly beautiful. If, almost as if Disney had designed a dark-bellied brent goose, so heightened all of the features. They're blacker than a dark-bellied brent goose. The white flash down the side. They have this Harry Potter scar flash down their sides. <laughs> and it's brighter and cleaner. And the little white collar that they have is brighter as well on a black brant. And they're from the Pacific Arctic. And a few of them, a very few of them, come to us in the winter. And then there's a fourth form called the grey-bellied brant. It's a bit of a mystery that uh, breeds in the central Arctic of Canada. And they're exceptionally rare coming to us in the UK. But a small number turn up in Ireland every winter. So why geese? Why geese? For one reason, listen to this sound. These, these sounds that come to us from the Arctic that fill the sky in the winter in Norfolk. And they're long-lived. They have culture. They have society. They have family bonds. They migrate together as families. And they represent the wildness. They're grey like geese calling there. They, they live here and those, that's a pair who are settling down, finding somewhere to breed, whereas all the purring in the distance is Brent geese that come from Siberia. They're long-lived. They're family birds. They migrate together in huge flocks, but within their families they represent wild landscapes. They represent the best of the wild Norfolk coast, but they also represent the Arctic landscapes that they come from. They're, they're just phenomenal. Tell me about culture. When you say they've got culture, what do you mean they have culture? They learnt there's a big group of pink feet over in the distance. Can you see over the trees in the far distance there's a little smudge of birds oh, yeah. and that's pink feet yeah. going out to feed. And that, in a sense, is what I'm talking about with culture. They... They have migratory routes that they always follow, although those can change. They have stopping grounds where they stage on their migrations. They have particular ways that they feed, particularly the pink feet, which are which are the the main goose, the number one goose of a Norfolk winter, and they're just leaving us now in February to go back up to, well, first to Lancashire and then to Iceland. They learn to feed on particular crops in the Norfolk landscape, and they have a definite culture of going to the sugar beet crops. And in the last few years, they've learned to feed in the maize crops, which, with changing climate, we now produce maize here, although it's largely produced for biodigesters. And they now feed in the maize. They historically would have fed in potato fields, but as our agriculture changes, they change. And it's, it's not just... It's not just a quick change. They learn to do things and they teach one another to do things and they follow one another across the landscape, learning to adapt to our human-dominated landscape. Phenomenally clever. They are phenomenally clever and they're long-lived birds with social interactions. We tend, as humans, we obviously, quite understandably, we place the family at the absolute centre of our society, but these are family creatures. And we tend, we tend not to respect that. Look at, look at the way we've treated wolves, for example. Wolves are large, landscape-using, family-centred creatures that need similar resources from the landscape to us. So what do we do? We demonise them. Now, we don't do that with geese, but we don't respect their family bonds. And I have friends, real friends, people I respect and admire who are wildfowlers, and take a small number of geese every winter from the wild flocks and they eat them and I respect their love and knowledge of the landscape 
but the one thing I come back to with them again and again and again is that they're taking the life of a bird that has these complex family interactions that knows migration routes up to the Arctic and may have been paired for a decade or more with its partner. And I have definitely seen geese that are out searching for a partner that has been shot. Why would you shoot a goose, a wild goose? Why would you do that? I mean... For many people, and I, I'm a vegan, I'm at, I'm at the deep green tree-hugging end of the spectrum here, but I do have people I genuinely love and respect who also shoot, and they see themselves in a deep-rooted way as part of the landscape and part of the... So we don't object, or most... In fact, interestingly, there's been this big debate recently about absurd really but teaching carnivores to be herbivores there, there's been a big campaign to, that we can solve the world's problems by teaching carnivores to be herbivores which ecologically we know is complete and utter nonsense but we don't object to there was a white-tailed eagle here um for several weeks through the middle of the winter we don't our hearts don't bleed over a white-tailed eagle taking a goose and if we do want to return to a more natural situation in which listen to the brent geese around us um if we do want to return to a situation in which humans actually live much more sustainably with the landscape maybe we need actually to honor our relationship with nature in a much more rooted way and the the friends i have who shoot geese they think of themselves in that way i suppose that they're part of the landscape and they're part of the natural threats to these geese but that's the point, isn't it? There are so many natural threats to these geese. And, you know, we'll probably talk in a bit about climate change and all of the changes. Why would we add a man-made threat that we could avoid by, you know, shooting something else? Yes. But maybe this is, the, you know, it should be a podcast about shooting. But honestly, it just it baffles me when I come out to see, I see and I see wild creatures. I was walking yesterday in Oxfordshire and there were deer running. And, you know, I said to my daughter, why, how could you shoot something so beautiful? She said, I don't know. It baffles me too. I could never do it. Can you hear the gadwall above us? And there's a coot calling there. Um, Yes, it baffles me too. I could, the act of violence of it, I could simply never do. But I do also respect, I've had the enormous privilege of living in in many countries around the world and working with indigenous people around the world who have to take lives for their own food. And we've lost that. And in a sense, there's a greater honour about knowing where your meat comes from if you're a meat eater. Yeah, true. Uh, Knowing that you've taken that life and you understand what's involved in that. Yes, true. There are lots of other things you could shoot. There are are indeed. There are indeed. Are you allowed to have a favourite goose? I do know just yesterday I was sent a photo of some tiger bean geese and um, the the tiger bean goose when I was a child wintered in quite significant numbers the only flock in Britain not not in Britain sorry there's one in Scotland and there's one in England and it's in the Norfolk Broads and there were maybe three four hundred of them when I was a child and they're now down to a tiny handful of individuals last year half a dozen and a flock has appeared just yesterday day before of about a dozen or so and they're slim, they're elegant, they're declining fast, they're mysterious, they're beautiful. And so if I had to, you've put me on the line here, Amanda. <laughs> if, if I had to, I think I would choose the tiger bean goose because it's such a tragedy that we're losing them. And we're losing them essentially because of climate change. 
So, yeah, we talk a lot on the podcast about climate change, obviously, and um, we talk about the, you know, the immediate effects we can see and the long-term effects that we've yet to know but we're predicting. How is climate change affecting geese and migratory birds particularly? At the moment, I would say that the key phenomenon that we know about and is demonstrably pinned to climate change is what we call short-stopping, which is that many species just don't need to migrate so far. So historically, the UK, stuck out in the Atlantic with the Gulf Stream, has been a great place to come if you're a bird that needs open water, soft, muddy marshes through the winter, because much of the continent, with a continental climate, freezes very, very hard. It's great in the summer, it's wonderfully warm, long, hot days. But in the winter, it freezes deep and hard. But with increasingly mild winters, thanks to climate change, western parts of the continent now often don't freeze so hard. So species like Buick swan, Russian white-fronted goose, and the tiger bean goose that we were just talking about, they just don't need to come so far anymore. So we're losing species. But... The other thing that we're noticing very significantly is that many European species are moving in, and this has a longer-term probable impact. So as we've been walking along, we've been hearing chetty warblers. When I was a child, there were no chetty warblers in North Norfolk, none whatsoever. Because it was too cold. Because it was too cold through the winter. Right, OK. And now we're standing here at Holcombe. Holcombe is magnificent, and in the distance we can see decoy wood and the reedbeds around decoy wood and that's now a breeding site for 50 pairs of spoonbills for half a dozen pairs of great egrets for cattle egrets for little egrets now these are all birds that didn't live here when i was a child historically spoonbills were here but the egrets absolutely not and we tend to punch the air and go how exciting we've got these thrilling new species but it's it is in a sense a zero-sum game because for everything that arrives the habitat is going to become worse for something else. Something else moves out, I guess. So relic... Now, now we don't... There's a rock pipit calling next to us here, that one going zip, zip, oh, yes, coming out of the see, salt yeah. marsh, which will very soon be heading up to some craggy Scottish coastline to breed, but here in our salt marshes through the winter. But we haven't yet seen so many of these impacts although some species like willow warbler willow tit have declined catastrophically but we will inevitably see things disappear and if you think about for example in a british context the the cairngorms the cairngorms the the uplands of scotland where there is a relic arctic landscape yeah that will eventually cease to exist because already the, the grasses of the lowlands are moving up the sides of the mountains. So if you're a ptarmigan, listen to the pink feet coming over. <laughs> Icelandic pink feet. Still here for another 10 days or so before they go to Lancashire. But if you're a dotterel or a ptarmigan or even a purple saxifrage that can only live in these relic Arctic environments, oh... They are wonderful, aren't they? Aren't they just? And these are whiffling. You see where they're tumbling from side to side? That's when they choose a place to land and they want to lose height quickly and they spin from side to side to drop very quickly and accurately. But yes, we are inevitably, as we gain Mediterranean species, going to lose Arctic species. And as the Arctic itself melts, these are species that breed on the tundra. Yeah, where it's really cold. Where it's really cold, and both from a disease point of view and from a habitat appropriateness point of view, they need that habitat to be there. Yeah, they do. They need the habitat here and they need the habitat there too. You've written quite a lot about the pink foot, haven't you? 
Is it, I mean, what, what's special about them? What's special about pink-footed geese? <sighs> They're special for so many reasons. They're special because they came back to us. They disappeared from North Norfolk following the Second World War and from the 1980s small numbers of them started to reappear and actually the wildfowlers were key in protecting them. They said we will protect their... Oh, snow buntings have just come down to drink. Oh my goodness, they're gorgeous. <laughs> they are and look at the males are now in breeding plumage. Oh, that's wonderful. White... And grey partridges flying right past. Little white underbellies. Aren't they gorgeous? They are. I, do you know, in all the years that I've been here, I've never seen snow buntings come into the freshwater marshes. Almost always on the beach. You're blessed. I am. You're blessed. I'm very lucky. And of course I haven't got anything to take a picture of, but it doesn't matter, it would be rubbish if I took it, so oh, better just to remember it. Exquisite they little are things. beautiful. And they're all just down on that little patch of water just now. Just come in for a drink of fresh water. But back to the pink feet, who are flying right over us right now. They're special because they came back to us. So why did they go? What happened? Was it the disruption of war? Was it the disruption of artillery artillery? on the coast and there were a lot of training instalments along the North Norfolk coast following the war and they were just disturbed from their roosts. Ah, the snow bunting's right over our heads. Safe journeys, little ones. Safe migrations. Um, Where are they off to? I do know the Norfolk ones. I don't know whether they go. They will almost certainly go further than our very small British breeding population in the Cairngorms. They might go. I mean, they breed in Greenland, in Iceland. I doubt our birds come from Greenland. Perhaps Iceland. Perhaps Norway. Maybe more likely. Okay. I don't honestly know. Um, the pink feet came back to us after a long period of not being too sure. And the wildfowlers decided to protect them. They said, we will protect the roosts. Uh, these are greylag geese flying over us now. Greylags sound like the kind of goose that would write to the newspapers every weekend to complain about something. Um, sort of tum- disgusted of Tunbridge yeah, World yeah, of the Goose Absolutely world. so, that's right. You're horrified of Holcomb flying, oh, right, past oh, 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 <laughs> flying right past us now. Um, the pink feet numbers slowly built, slowly built, and they adapted, they learnt to feed on sugar beet, which really took off in the middle of the 20th century. And that's when the numbers shot up, both in Norfolk and globally, in fact, when Peter Scott and James Fisher went to Iceland in the early 1950s, they estimated an Iceland and Greenland breeding population of about 30 to 50,000 pink-footed geese. And now that population, which is the biggest population, is up to... Uh, 550,000 birds, something like that and that's largely fed on British agriculture and so the numbers built up, built up, built up but now perhaps because the way we harvest sugar beet in Norfolk is changing and I suspect probably more significantly because climate is changing, we get fewer and fewer so we built up to a peak of more than 100,000 geese uh, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago and slowly the numbers are dropping at a guess, I don't know factually yet, but at a guess, the highest but number this winter was about 70,000, I would think. Okay, and that's reflecting the drop in migratory birds generally, isn't it? Because we were chatting to Sasha Dench, <coughs> of course, who flew with the Buick Swans from the tundra to Slimbridge uh, those years ago. We were chatting about the drop in general migratory species, and it's quite severe and significant um, it, into the UK now, isn't it? It's Across cert- all species, it, I mean, starlings for one. It certainly is in many, many species, and that's a whole mix of different things. Obviously, we can't across the board say that all species are 
declining in numbers because of climate change. In the case of Buick swan, there's science that demonstrates that's the case. But in the case of many species, the, the ramp up in the way we use landscape is having an impact. And it, is, it, it would be disingenuous to pretend that our domination of landscape has not changed radically in the 20th century. In the 20th century, we invented DDT, and that was perfectly safe and it wasn't going to do any harm, but in fact it ended up doing catastrophic harm. But we also invented larger and larger machines, and, which are controlled from the satellites, and so we ripped out hedges in order to give them the space to farm the land because it was more efficient. We became better at draining the land. We filled in and in the UK we filled in something like 90% of farm ponds. We we have massively mechanised the way we dominate landscape and there is quite simply less space in the landscape for wildlife and that is echoed across the world and as of course with with no disrespect to people in the global south who are catching up with the privileges we have in the global north as global south countries catch up in terms of landscape use there's less space for our migratory birds to go to so across the world we need a revolution both in our environmental behavior and also in our respect for landscape and biodiversity are you at all hopeful that some of that revolution might be coming because we have got a focus on the environment and on wildlife and on birds in a way that we haven't had for many years amongst certain people, not everybody, but a certain focus, a certain degree of political commitment. I'm putting a big question mark next to that. Um, but you, are you at all hopeful? I mean, you've had experience of, of, of living in the global south. and you've, you know, are you, Do you feel there might be changes happening or is that just wishful thinking? I'm listening to a little female teal doing her spring quack. That's her come hither, gorgeous little thing. And she gives me hope. Um... There are, finally, the right noises being made. And they are being made by many very influential people across the world. So what I would say is, if we don't do this now, then we really are doomed, ourselves and everything else with us. I don't know whether I'm hopeful, but I'm damn well not going to give up trying. (laughs) And I think I'm probably with many thousands of other similarly committed yeah. people across the board in that respect. And, and small scale, there are things we can do. And the, some of the changes in farming practice and some of the really good exemplar that we have in places like Wild Ken Hill and others, where we've shown that regenerative agriculture works, it isn't massively less productive. So there are things that, that the immediate custodians of the land can do as well, aren't there? I mean, and I'm assuming that's happening here in Holcombe. Oh, uh, very much so. Holcombe is. Uh, the, the marsh is in the most remarkably good hands, great people doing good stuff. And as you can see, it is heaving with wildlife, but also the farm is taking great strides. Um, towards being better for biodiversity and better for carbon storage. So yes, Holcomb is definitely moving in the right direction under strong, strong leadership. I would say also, I think at this point, really, as environmentalists, as conservationists, as people who love wildlife, this is the time for personal action. And that that can mean a whole spectrum of things. It can mean, in a sense, my book in which I cycled 1,200 miles on a 44-year-old bicycle. It was 42 at the time, I think. Um, it didn't make any difference to how much it hurt my bottom. Um, uh, it was about showing that, there's, that we don't have to lead 
high-carbon lives, but also that we can... It is the relationship with place, with our local places and our local wildlife, that really brings value to your life. And we don't need to be chasing after ever more comfort, ever more excitement elsewhere in the world, because there's beauty wherever you choose to look for it. Um, and... I really think we now, as, as environmentalists, we all need to bear witness. In, in Britain, we're very bad at rocking the boat. We're, we're taught to be, to be polite and not upset anybody and never rock the boat. But really, I think we need to step up as environmentalists and be seen to be adapting. Now, everyone's, everyone's lives are different. Everyone has different pressures on their lives. I'm not saying everybody needs to become a vegan and give up driving and etc 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 because it, realistically that's not going to happen for everybody but we can all talk about these things and we can all be unashamed to talk about them and show leadership in a non-judgmental way in a in a way that doesn't say oh I'm better than you because I've done this everyone's circumstances are different yeah. but we at least need to be open to conversation and to looking at other people and going wow I'm really impressed by what you're doing I wonder how much of that I could do myself yes because you did have you know the high-flying, literally high-flying lifestyle, didn't you? You lived abroad, you took conservation tours, you flew. So some people would say, oh, it's OK for you, Nick, because you've done it all and now you've come back to Norfolk just to, to, to do something different. Yes, so- I, I absolutely respect that argument. It, it isn't what motivated me. For me, it was never actually about going places to see things. I, I had the enormous privilege of helping colleagues and friends around the world share what they knew and what they were doing and that was the thing that motivated me and so when I hello Redshank calling to us calling next door to us um when I reached the point in the in the balance where I felt I was doing more harm by doing that I had to give up so for me I know this sounds preachy and holier than thou and it's I, I apologise for that, but it was never about me. Oh, it's so exciting. I've seen this, I've seen that. It wasn't about that. I had the enormous privilege of being almost like a bridge between friends who were working in conservation, in the glo- often in the global south, but all over the world, and people who wanted to learn about it. And that was my privilege. So, But yes, I can see I did have a very high carbon um, lifestyle and I couldn't take it anymore so I stopped <laughs> and now you just had a very sore bottom and now I have a very sore bottom from so my 44 year old bicycle your 44 year old bicycle and the bicycle was because it was there and it was locked down and absolutely you... and in the winter lockdown in the winter lockdowns so that first cold one yes absolutely in the winter lockdowns we were allowed to exercise as much as we liked mm. so I just got on my bike and I cycled 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 and I followed the geese. And in, obviously I didn't become a goose. My, the geese don't care at all whether I follow them or not. But I became, they became my company. Yeah. They became my friends for that winter. They've always been my friends, but they became very, very important that winter. And I wrote about them. And did you know when you started that the book might come out the other end? I mean, because I'm always fascinated by the process of writing. And, you know, I live with a writer who spends his entire time writing things on the backs of envelopes and jotting things down and stopping in the middle of the street to say, I've just got to write. Did you know that the book was coming or was it just that writing was part of that friendship with the geese? That's, yes. I didn't know that it would end up being published, but I did set out. I thought now's the time I have to write something that has one theme right the way through a single adventure as it were um so i i hoped it would become a book 
but as you well know, a book is a long, long, <laughs> slow and at times painful process. But it's now out in the world in honour of the geese. We can hear Brent's next to us, the pink feeder calling in the distance. In honour of the geese, the book is now out in the world. Yeah. And the meaning of geese. Now that's an interesting title. Does that... I mean, I have only just had got my copy, so I haven't had a chance to read it. I did start it in bed last night, but I haven't got very far in. So, so tell me why, why the title? The title came to me while cycling. And as I say, I cycle 1,200 miles thinking about nothing but geese. Um, as I spoke to friends and colleagues, because it wasn't just my own experience of the geese, I wanted to reflect what geese mean in people's lives. So I spoke first, in fact, to Andy, who's the warden here at Holcombe, and he spent his entire life with the geese. And then I spoke to wildfowlers. I spoke to painters, including James McCallum, who grew up here in Wales, who is the most distinguished painter of the wild geese that we have today. I spoke to friends who study geese elsewhere in the world. I spoke to friends with whom I've watched geese around the world. In India, for example, where large numbers of um, bar-headed geese and eastern greylag geese winter. I spoke to, the more I spoke to people about the geese, the more I realised there was this thread of meaning in their lives. And then as the book ended, I, having made a statement about low-carbon living through the book, cycling on my painful bicycle for a thousand miles, I decided I'm not following the geese, even though by that point I could have done because the lockdown restrictions were, um, were lifting. I'm not going north to follow them. I will speak to people via the technology we now have whose lives they affect and for whom they have a meaning because that meaning's not my meaning. The one thing I knew from cycling a thousand miles with these geese was that I have a strong, deep, hefted relationship with this landscape and these species. But once they've gone north, that isn't my relationship. So I spoke to a wonderful birder in Lancashire, Stuart Derbyshire, who loves the geese when they stage with him for a few weeks. And he generously shared his story. And then I found two... It took a long time and lots of people saying, oh, no, I don't know enough about them, uh, to find two scientists in Iceland who agreed to speak to me. And they told me their story with the geese. And at that point, I felt the geese were home. And finally, I spoke to Daphne Scott, who is... Oh, there go both the pink feet and the Brents, and the Widgeon as well, something... Ah, it's that vehicle that's up on the farm at the top. Oh, yes, Yes, that's disturbing. They don't like headlights. Headlights disturb the pink feet, which is quite a common problem with birdwatchers through the winter. But I spoke at the end of my journey with Daphne Scott, who is the daughter of Peter Scott. And Peter Scott really was... In from the from the forties onwards, was the man who made our cultural relationship with geese, our, the meaning that they give to our lives. Famous in the UK, he was the one who started the studies of pink-footed geese, who started the studies of Buick swans, who created the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, and indeed was a major part in creating WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Hello, pink feet. And so I spoke to Daphne. Yeah, flying straight towards straight us. Straight towards us. Yodelling. Yeah, such a very different call. Yes. So the, the pink feet, the first time in the book that I described them, I talk about the shrill Norse gossip of the pink feet. And the Brents have that Slavic burbling, that yeah. purring sound. And these guys, the pink feet, will leave us within 10 days or so to go to Lancashire. So Daphne told me really what the geese had meant through her life, but also in her father's life, because I'd been reading 
I've read everything that there is about geese, about wildfowling, about our relationship with geese all through that winter. And I, I needed, in a sense, to ground truth, what I felt I'd understood about Peter Scott. Yeah. And Daphne was warm and generous enough to, to share with me her, her life and her father's life with geese. Because that's how you got into it in the first place, isn't it? You know, looking at that old copy of Peter Scott's Guide to Coastal Birds, in, a, you know, young in, man and at school with an influential teacher. Indeed. A, a, a route in. It, it was indeed. And um, Peter Scott, uh, yes, Peter Scott was my hero. And he was my hero as a child. Gerald Darrell and Peter Scott were my heroes, far more than many other famous television presenters, for example, because they had said, OK, these things are gorgeous, we love them, they're beautiful, we honour them, but we're going to do something about it. They've both founded organisations which have gone on to do phenomenal good for wildlife. Um, and as you say, it was a teacher um, at my secondary school who spotted that I loved the wild world and took me into a little group of... it. T- we were all boys, although it was a mixed school. Um, and all of us really are still deeply committed to biodiversity um, one friend works at the British Trust for Ornithology and has a PhD on birds and others of us are still even though they may not be working in conservation they're still very involved with birds and wildlife and he's he's in the way many teachers do generously shared his own experience and knowledge and handed it on to us and I feel a real responsibility in a way to hand that on because I've had this enormous honour and privilege of being given these places and given something of an understanding of them so my life's work really is to share that little understanding that I have and that's what the book will do among other things among other things that you do with teaching and talking and sparing time to talk to me on a very cold damp every morning <laughs> well when you've cycled 1200 miles through an entire winter after the geese this standing here with a woolly hat on and my gloves on is really it's really just easy stuff yeah, it's part of luxury <laughs> it, it is really? indeed uh, the worst of the cycling was that you would cycle 10 miles with a base layer on, with all your layers on, and you'd be really, really warm. And then you'd stand for five or six hours going through a great pink foot flock, looking for the rarer geese and watching the behaviour of the geese. And by the end of that, you were absolutely shivering. <laughs> so thermoregulation. I came to understand some of the, the demands on a wild creature's life by having to deal with thermoregulation. Yeah, absolutely. They are simply staggering. And, uh, and there's something about, it doesn't matter what sort of goose it is, even if it's, you know, there's ones that are so common for many of us who live in urban environments, the old Canada goose that everybody moans about because it, you know, it makes a mess on the park. And, it, you know, just that sound of, of, of geese in flight is so powerful. It, it is indeed. And I make the point in the book about the, the introduced Canada geese that we have all over the UK. I make the point that for many people, they're the only megafauna they see. Yeah. If you live in the centre of a city and there's a park near you with a lake, there will be a pair of Canada geese on it. And for many people, they're, I think I say that they're shards of a, mega, of a, of a megafauna that we've lost. And they're the last tangible thing that people have to connect them with wildness. Yeah. And they're precious for that reason. They are precious for that reason. Yeah, even if they are a bit noisy. Even if they are a little noise. Yeah, but as you say, it's an evocative noise. It's a wonderful noise. Yeah, I do remember when my first daughter was born, the 4am feed and hearing the geese go over every morning as I sat there as it got light. Uh, And that is the meaning of geese. That's the meaning of geese.
Thank you. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. 